Open your Bibles for the last time to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter number 4. We have come to the 10th and the final sermon in our exposition through this little book. We've spent 10 consecutive weeks going verse by verse looking at the life and ministry of this rebellious little prophet. For those who may have grown up in church, you've probably heard many a Sunday school lesson, many a VBS lesson, and the occasional sermon on on Jonah. However, I feel pretty confident you probably have never uh, gone had been a part of something that was this in depth. Um, for those of you with smartphones or access to the internet, all of the sermons have been uploaded online to places like Spotify or whatever platform you may like to listen to podcasts on. So if you ever want to go back and review some of the ground we've covered, they're there. And if you need help to get in there, uh, Brother Tony and Teresa back there can show you. Miss Ann can show you. Uh, me or Jesse, one can to uh, show you how to, how to access that. Over and over, we've seen through this series, there is so much more to this little book than just a rebellious little prophet who was swallowed whole by a great big whale. There's much rich richness and depth in the truths that are inside these four chapters. I'm going to miss Jonah. I really am. This little book has become a dear friend to me over the last 10 weeks. I've enjoyed my preparation from week to week. I've enjoyed the things that God has revealed to us each week, although they may not be uh, very enjoyable for the moment. I have enjoyed and appreciated the convicting truths that God has forced us to deal with. As with all of Scripture, this is a very convicting book. And the reader is forced to make decisions based off of the truths that are revealed. And with each and every week, with each and every truth that has been revealed, no one can truly, honestly, and wholeheartedly say, you know, that really doesn't apply to me. Change your name to Cleopatra because you're the queen of denial, okay? You're living in denial. The things that the Lord has shown us through this exposition has at times been a real spiritual punch in the stomach. And it's not going to be any different as we conclude this morning. So look with me at Jonah chapter 4. And I want to read to your hearing all 11 verses. Last week we considered the pouting prophet. This week I want to speak to you upon the rebuked prophet Jonah chapter one beginning chapter four beginning with verse one these are the very words of God but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry and he prayed unto the Lord and said I pray thee O Lord was not this my saying when I was yet in my country therefore I fled before unto Tarshish for I knew thou art a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm 
When the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, and it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said it, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast pity, thou hast had pity on the gourd, for that which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I, should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would make this applicable to every heart, to every mind, to every life, Lord. Father, we pray that you would uh, reveal to us things that we may have not considered one last time through this mighty prophet of yours, the, the prophet Jonah. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us things about ourselves that we need to get right and that we would make them right with you this day. May your word go forth and accomplish what it is that you have for it. And we will be very careful to give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor for it. For in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 4. Jonah had come off of a three-day preaching crusade where hundreds of thousands of people did not shun his message, but instead repented and were spared the judgment of God. The people of Nineveh did not ignore the command of God as it came to them. They didn't put it off. They did not want to take a little more time to enjoy their pleasures of sin. They heard the message and they moved. They moved in acts of repentance toward God. From the poorest of the poor to the king of Nineveh. Because that is what the word of God does. It does not care about earthly stature. It does not care about status and things that we heap upon people. When God's word comes to a person's heart, everyone is the same. Everyone is on the same level. Riley likes the little, the, the little rhyme that, I, that, that I've said several times. I didn't get it. I got it from another preacher. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. It doesn't matter. It does not matter the word of God. The word of God is equal to all. It is, it is that spirit. That is, it is that sword. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow. And it is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It pierces right through and gets to the heart of every man and woman. And that's what the word did in Nineveh. From the poorest of the poor to the king of Nineveh, all of Nineveh fasted, sat in sackcloth and ashes, and cried out to the Most High God in repentance of their sin. That's what every pastor, what every preacher and every evangelist desires to see. To see the message that God gives us go forth and yield fruit. And you know what else? That should be the desire of every true follower of Jesus Christ. It should be the earnest desire of every one of our hearts that not just the people that we know that are lost, but that the gospel would find receptive hearts in every heart all over the world. Even among those that hate us and seek to do us harm. 
Some of the most heartwarming words are found in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. In all of the Bible, some of the most comforting and heartwarming words are found in Jonah 3, 10, where we are told that God saw the repentance of the Ninevites. He withheld the judgment that he had warned them of, and he did not do it. God saw their repentance. The repentance of the Ninevites got the attention of the one true living God. It is verses like that that reveal to us that God is personable. He's not high above the clouds and stars, just not paying attention to the things that are happening here on the earth or not paying attention and and ignorant of the things that are happening in our lives. Another comforting passage is Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, where we find these words. It says, now it happened in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the slavery and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. Listen to this. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God knew them. That is a great comforting truth this morning that God knows what you and I are going through. He knows our sorrows. He knows the trials that you and I are in. And and, and if you and I are in covenant with Him through the bloodshed sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know Christ as Savior, God is with you. Psalm chapter 34, verse 18 says, The Lord, Yahweh God, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are of a crushed spirit. Folks, for the child of God, we are never ever truly alone, no matter how we feel. We have the church. First and foremost on this earth, you think about it in physical uh, 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 connotations, we have the church. We have our brothers and sisters in Christ. We talked this past Wednesday night about how we are to have a love for our brethren. The Christian is not to go through this life alone. I told a guy at work this past week that when it comes to the local church, a Christian should be in one of two categories. They should either be an active member of a Bible-believing church or they should be actively searching for a Bible-believing church. And one of the symptoms of being a true Christian is that love for your brothers and sisters, a love for the church. Hear these words of 1 John chapter 4, and I'm just going to give you a heads up. After we get through Christmas, Lord willing, it is the desire of my heart that we're going to dive headfirst into 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. Then he drops down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John is saying there, how can someone say that they love God, but they they have no love for the church? You see your brothers and sisters. You see them. you, you, You can shake their hand. You can hug their neck. You see them, but you have no love for them. How are you going to have love for someone you can't see? And these people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. There's no such critter in the Bible. There is no such thing. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church because what? Who's in church? Hypocrites. Well, you don't mind going to Walmart with them. 
You don't mind going to work with them. I gave you this, this example. Those of you that are still working, get up in the morning, call the boss man and said, look, hey, I'm not coming in today. I'm not coming in anymore. I really like to, I want to, I'd like to stay on the payroll though, but I just can't come in anymore because you got some hypocrites working down there. See if he or she doesn't tell you, uh, you better get your hind in on down here or you better find another job. So if we'll go, if people will go to all these other places and then being, and are fine being around hypocrites, why not the house of God? Could it be that they're the hypocrite? And they truly do not love God because they don't love the church. And you think about this, and I know that there, for, we have empty seats here this morning for other various reasons. I understand that. And I understand that there are people, members of this church that cannot come. Their physical health won't allow them to. God knows that. God knows that it's the desire of their heart. The, 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 the pastor that performed mine and Jesse's wedding, his mom, mother and father, it broke their hearts at the end of their lives that they couldn't come to church on a regular basis, that their health wouldn't allow it. When they could come, they'd come dragging oxygen, both of them. But when they, but they couldn't do it, and it broke their heart, but yet people who are able-bodied that have the opportunity and the privilege to come and worship the Most High God and gather with His people see no need for it. They see no need for it. Now, compare last week to this week. They, you know, people had a love for bluegrass music. Peter, people had a love for some good food. But what about a love for the church? And until people see the worship of the triune God and the assembling together with His people as something that you need to do, He's not important to you. He is not important to you. And some will often have the legitimate reason that they say, well, I often have to work on Sundays. Have you ever went to your boss man and said, hey, can I come in late? Do you, would it be okay if I came in after church? I'll take the hit and the paycheck. Because if your boss agrees to that, I can assure you, God will make up that difference. God will bless that. And some people said, well, you know, you know I, had to, I had to work the, 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 the night shift last night, so I, I, uh, I had to have to go and get some sleep. There's a family that Jesse and I have been connected with that live in Halifax County through social media. For all of the evils that social media is, there's been some good folks that I've met through it, right? I've met some fine people through that, and there's a, there's a, a wonderful family that live in the Halifax County. They're a homesteading family. They got a bunch of kids. They got a bunch of kids, and the husband is a truck driver, okay? He's, he was up in West Virginia driving all night to come home to be, to be with his family so he could take his family where? Church. Folks, we have to see the importance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've said this many times. I said this many times, and, and, and several members of Evergreen pointed this out last week. There's going to come a time in probably the not-too-distant future, we're going to need one another. We're going to need one another desperately. And it's one of the huge blessings to know that we aren't alone in this world. We don't have, and I heard testimony when, before prayer time where people were talking about how they were thankful for their church family, that they couldn't have made it through things in their lives without this church. That's what it's all about. Love God and love His kids. 
And when we neglect the church, not only do we disobey the Lord, but we're missing a huge blessing and a huge resource. But more than the blessing of having the church, we have the Lord with us at all times. He's near to the brokenhearted. He does not move. You and I do, but He doesn't. And the Scripture tells us, draw nigh unto God and He will do what? Draw nigh unto you. This goes right along with the Christmas season that we're getting ready to get into. For Jesus Christ is the embodiment of how God is personable. That He is not far away, distant, and uncaring. But He is the Emmanuel, God with us. And although Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good, that should be a very, should be very sobering for us and should be a constant reminder to deter us from sin. God is not sitting on his throne ready to throw down lightning bolts of judgment. Look what it says in uh, verse 2, Jonah 4. It says, for I know thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness and repentest thee of evil. If you know true salvation in Jesus Christ, when you read that verse, chapter 4, verse 2, that should make you want to run up down the mountain valley road, rejoicing and in celebration, crying out to everyone that will listen. Praise God for His grace, for His mercy, for His patience, for His kindness. That He doesn't give us what we deserve. It should cause us to be sold out for Jesus. And it should what we desire for others to have as well, for the lost to have as well. And if and when they do find out about it like the people of Nineveh did, that should cause us to rejoice all the more. But not Jonah. Not Jonah. It was not Jonah's desire to see the Ninevites repent and be spared the judgment of God. Jonah wanted to see fire and brimstone rain down upon Nineveh. The very things that I just listed that Jonah listed that should cause us to rejoice, Jonah uses it as an indictment to be angry at God. God shows mercy upon Nineveh. Yet it made, and that made Jonah mad. It made Jonah angry. And it caused him to pout. Pout like a child. Like a child that can't get their way. He's being over, overly dramatic by saying that he would rather die than get his way. He would rather die than Nineveh live. He would rather die than have to go back to Israel and tell his friends that Nineveh was spared. Therefore, he pouts. Jonah pouts because he does not think that the Ninevites deserve mercy. Jonah thinks that he knows better than God. Anyone ever been there before? You ever been disappointed in the way something turned out and you think that God should have consulted with you beforehand? You know, God, it would have worked out a little bit better had you just talked to me first. We could, have, we could have got this thing right. God doesn't need to consult with us. Peter thought this, that he knew better than the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders of the chief, and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. He begins to tell the disciples that his earthly ministry is coming to an end and now it's time for him to pay the supreme sacrifice to be offered as the perfect sacrifice for sins. Peter didn't understand it. In verse 22 of Matthew 16, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But listen to what Jesus tells him. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are setting your mind you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Folks, God doesn't need our help. 
I talked about it last week. God is self-existing. He needs nothing. He needs no one. We need Him. He could do without us. We could not last five minutes without Him. But praise God for the fact that He loves us and that He chooses to accomplish His purposes through us. But He doesn't need us. Isaiah 46 verse 9, another comforting verse. It says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no other like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which, I, things which have been done, saying, my counsel, my plans, my purposes, my desires, what I want will be, will be established, and I will accomplish all, not some, but all, my good pleasure. God does not just have the best seat in the house to view every angle of every scenario of how it ought to turn out. No, they will happen according to his will and purpose. Jonah just thought in this situation God was a little misguided and therefore he pouts. And in the remaining verses of chapter four, God deals with what was once his rebellious prophet has now become his pouting prophet. And we see in the... uh, verses that follow, the closing verses of chapter 4, we see Jonah become the rebuked prophet. Four points as we close out this message. Point number one, look at verse 4. We see the scolding. Look what it says. Then the Lord said, Doest thou well to be angry? God scolds Jonah by asking him, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Think back to what Peter told Jesus. Jesus told Peter, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but rather man's. That's what Jonah was doing. Whether it was his personal vendetta against the Ninevites for killing his father, or if it were the just because the Assyrians were the mortal enemies of the Jews, whatever it was, it seems like Jonah's mind was set on personal revenge and not on what God wanted. And maybe it wasn't personal revenge that Jonah was after. It may have been that Jonah just wanted to see uh, uh, the, the justice of God take place because of the exceeding sinfulness of the Ninevites. You know what? I can identify with that. I can identify with that as uh, of the last uh, uh, year when we watched uh, nations, uh, cities across this nation on fire due to peaceful protests. Or when sin is paraded and celebrated in our streets. And I get so frustrated and I think to myself, Lord, you know, you ought to just open up a hell mouth right under their feet and just be done with them. But Acts chapter 17, verse 30 tells us that God wants all men everywhere to repent. God wanted Nineveh to repent. And all of heaven is rejoicing because of the repentance of the Ninevites. Right? We were told, Sermon on the Mount, that, that, that heaven rejoices over the repentance of one sinner. And now thousands of people are repenting, so heaven was re, uh, rejoicing. But not Jonah. Jonah's pouting. And so God scolds Jonah and says, do you really have a good reason to be angry? Is there a real reason why you're so mad? The great theologian Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, he said, see how mildly the great God speaks to this foolish man to teach us to restore those that have fallen with a spirit of meekness and with soft answers to turn away wrath. There is one thing to have a righteous anger or a righteous indignation. We should be angry at sin, especially our own. 
We should be angry when we see others treated wrongly. We should seek for true justice to be done. We are told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, to be angry and sin not. It would save us a lot of headache if we would pause and ponder the question that God puts to Jonah here in verse 4. Do I have a good reason to be mad right now? Do I have a good reason to be angry? Am I angry at something that God would be angry at? Is what I am getting upset at really worth it? Or is it coming from somewhere else? Is my anger justified? Is it directed in the right places? Am I filled with the Spirit in order to control my anger and make it that righteous indignation? Because if it is not, it's sinful anger. And if unchecked, we'll set off a chain reaction of more sin and consequences that we do not want or need. Point number two, look what it says in verse five. We see the scoffing. Verse five, so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of that city. The pouting continues. God scolds him. God gives him a gentle rebuke, but Jonah keeps on pouting. He, he, he keeps on pouting. God asks Jonah, do you really have a justified reason to be angry? And he doesn't. But just like a pouting child that has to be told, that has been told no, you're probably going to have to tell them more than once, and you may even have to do more than just tell them. So for the second time in this book, Jonah abandons his place of ministry. He left the city where he could see, he left the city where he could see what would happen. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have left. I wouldn't have left till God told me to. I'd have been there running up and down the streets rejoicing with them and in their celebration that they had been spared. I'd have been trying to teach them what little bit that I know about the Lord. I'd have been trying to ground them in the faith, kind of like what the Apostle Paul did when God commissioned him to go to the ancient world and establish churches. I would not have left until God said, okay, Jonah, time to move on somewhere else. But Jonah, in his pouting, in his, on his pity pot, and he thinks that God was wrong in sparing Nineveh, goes out in the east of the city, and it's believed that he gets upon a high cliff. Because look what it says at the end of verse 5. Till he might see what would become of the city. And he goes out there, and he, he makes him what is called a booth, but he makes him like a lean-to, a little shelter to keep the heat off of him so he can have a good seat, so he can have a good seat to hopefully that the Ninevites will backslide and God will rain down fire and judgment upon them. Jonah's sitting back scoffing, hoping, hoping against hope that judgment would finally come down upon the Ninevites. Warren Wearsby writes in his, in his commentary, what a tragedy it is when God's servants are a means of blessing to others, but miss the blessing themselves. When you can't see what's going on because of your own uh, selfishness, you miss the boat. You miss the blessing of the Lord, right? You know, it, it, it is indeed, you know, better to give than it is to receive. It is more of a blessing to give than it is to receive, right? And I know what it's like to be on the receiving end. I know what it's like 
to be in prayer that God, I need for this to happen. God, I, I need for you to make a way because there does not seem a way to be made. And then God shows up and He shows off and that way is made. I also know what it's like and how it feels to be that conduit of blessing. And that's even so much better. Thank you, Lord, that you allowed me to be used to show yourself mighty. Jonah didn't see it that way. So he gets him a, a, a seat as high as he can get on a cliff, builds him a, a, a little lean-to in order to hopefully the Ninevites will backslide and judgment will finally come down upon the Ninevites. That brings us to point three, verses six through eight. We see the shelter. Look what it says in verse six. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it made a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. God is going to teach Jonah one final lesson. The Lord has one final lesson prepared for his rebellious pouting prophet. God knew that Jonah was very uncomfortable sitting in that booth. So he graciously caused a vine or a gourd to grow whose leaves were large enough to protect Jonah from the scorching hot sun. And you think back over all the ground that we've covered from chapter 1 to now. God worked 10 miracles in this book. Chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind. Chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord caused the lot to fall on Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord caused the sea to cease from its raging. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a whale. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed the whale to swallow Jonah alive. Chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord commanded the whale to release Jonah. 3, verse 10, God saw their deeds that they turned from their ways. That miracle of repentance. Chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant. Verse 7, the Lord appointed a worm. And then in verse 8, the Lord appointed a scorching wind. I love alliteration where you start each point off with the, with the, with the same letter. I, lo- I learned that from Haywood. I learned that through a uh, homiletics class in seminary. It helps you be able to take it away and it, it sticks with you in your mind. So if you want to alliterate what God has done in this book, God has appointed a wind, a whale, a weed, a worm, and another wind. God's power is seen all the way through this. God caused the weed, the plant, to grow and give Jonah some relief from that scorching wind. And Jonah was glad. He was glad. This made Jonah happy. Look look, look what it says. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. He was happy that his needs were met. He was happy that he was comfortable. But the next day in verse 7, as Job tells us in his book, the Lord giveth... And the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God sends a worm in the night to begin eating the plant that was given Jonah shelter. Caused that thing to dry up. And then God sends a strong wind to blow the dead withered shelter from off of the head of Jonah. Now Job may have said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you and I should be spiritually mature enough to say that. And if we're not, we should strive to be But Jonah wasn't. Jonah was not spiritually mature to be able to say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Jonah goes right back to pouting. God had blessed Jonah, but in order to teach Jonah a lesson, the Lord removed that blessing. And the Lord had been blessing Jonah all throughout that book. 
choosing him to be his prophet, blessing him by not killing him in his disobedience, blessing Jonah by using him to be that conduit that brought hundreds of thousands of people to come to repentance. And if you look at verse 11, I found this out in my preparation. The Bible tells us 120,000 people in number. That's, that's what it means, six score thousand persons. It means 120,000 people. But some people say that when you consider the phrase where it says persons that cannot discern their left from their right, it's referring to the children of Nineveh as well. So the number that, that, that of people in that city that repented could be as high as 600,000 people. 600,000 people may have been spared. And God blessed Jonah by allowing him to be a part of that. But he was not grateful. He was not grateful. He's pouting. He's upset. And so God sends this instrument of comfort in the weed. Jonah was happy at that, but it, was not, it does not say that he was grateful to the Lord. You don't see where he was grateful, that he was thankful to the Lord for sending the weed. Jonah had developed an entitled mentality, kind of like the culture that we live in. He thought that he deserved good things. He deserved comforts and ease. He thought that he deserved to get his way in everything. Folks, listen to me when I say this. There is a danger in getting used to the blessings of God. We tend to focus more on the blessings. We can tend to focus more on the blessings instead of the one from whom all blessings flow. The half-brother of the Lord Jesus writes in James chapter 1, verse 17, says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. That stuff can become an idol to us. And when the blessings become so frequent, come so frequently, we may get to believe in, you know what? I deserve it. I deserve it. I deserve the quality of life that I have. I deserve the comforts that I have. You know what the Bible tells us that we deserve? It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. What we deserve on this earth says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because you were taken from it. For you are dust and to dust you, you shall return. What do we deserve? To work for what we have. To labor for what we have in this life. That's what we deserve. And the Lord also tells us in His Word what we deserve after this life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, the payment for sin is death. Death in this life and the physical death and the second death in the lake of fire. And we live in the most blessed nation on earth. Even though evil people are trying to destroy it through socialism and communism, it's still the most blessed anywhere you can find. And you and I are guilty for taking things for granted. We take for granted our daily provision that God has blessed us with. Good health, shelter, food, vehicles, family, friends, all of it. We take it for granted. Before I said that this morning... Had that thought entered your mind as we approach Thanksgiving that you're going to sit before this Thursday, you're going to sit before more food than a large portion of this earth will in a month. You will have more 
food before your face this week than many people on earth will have in a month's time. Of all the reasons that America is under the judgment of God, national ingratitude has to be one of them. Jonah did not give thanks to whom thanks was due. He did not see the weed as the gift that it was. And folks, God's not obligated to bless us. When we are not grateful, He will certainly not continue to pour out His blessings upon us, and Jonah found that out. Once again, the pouting continues. Jonah says, once again, it would be better for me to die than to live. And you know what I'm screaming in my mind as I'm reading this and I'm preparing? Just repent and go back to Nineveh. Just repent and go back to Nineveh and get out of the heat. That's all you got to do. But I can see him in my mind on the ground, kicking, kicking his feet and stomping like a child, pouting. Hold, you know, like a child will, will hold his breath you know, and think that that's going to do something to the parent. That's going to move them. They're going to hold their breath till they die. Go ahead. Eventually, you, your body's going, your body's going to make you breathe. You know, that's Jonah. He's pouting. He is pouting. He had more compassion for himself and his own needs than he did compassion for the eternal needs of, of hundreds of thousands of people. Jonah had pity on the vine that perished, but he did not have compassion for the people who would perish and live eternally apart from God in hell. You think about Jeremiah and the Lord Jesus. When they looked upon Jerusalem individually, what'd they do? They wept over it. We talked on Wednesday night about how when Paul went, went to Athens, Greece, he was grieved. It broke his heart at their idolatry. He knew that if they did not repent and come out of that, where they were headed. But Jonah looked on the city of Nineveh and he seethed with anger. He needed to learn the lesson of God's pity and have compassion for lost souls. God tells Jonah, you had compassion for a plant, but not for people. And when I read that, that brings to mind people in our day that have compassion for animals, but not human beings, particularly when it comes to unborn human beings. You know, when it was discovered about the horrific testing of Anthony Fauci and the NIH, what they were doing to beagles, the nation got up in arms, right? Got mad. Yet the same nation is silent at the fact that tomorrow, 3,000 unborn children will be ripped apart in their mother's womb. Jonah had compassion for a plant, but not for people. Jonah had compassion for a plant just because it kept him comfortable. Jonah was more upset that his comfort was disturbed than he was for a city that was spared the judgment of God. Jonah was upset that God was glorified in pardoning a people that would honor him and worship him. Jonah didn't make the plant. Jonah didn't make the people. God made the plant and the people. And all of creation glorifies the Lord, glorifies the Lord, but it is mankind that bears God's image. It is mankind that God desires fellowship with. And God gives people their value. That's what I would like to tell to all the young people in our, in, in our nation that, that are bullied, that, that society, that, 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 that people their age treat them like garbage, they're kicked down and they, and they think that they're nobody, they're nothing. Other people don't give you your worth. Your worth comes from the God of heaven and earth. Psalm 139 verse 17 says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. 
How vast is the sum of them. And you know this in what Christ did. You have value to him because he, to him, he thinks you are to die for. And the story of Jonah ends with a question that's not answered. Jonah and Nahum are the only books in the Bible that end this way, and both of them deal with Nineveh. 150 years later, the Ninevites forgot all about God sparing them from judgment, and they fall right back into sin. And it causes you to wonder, had Jonah stayed there and taught the Ninevites about God, maybe Nahum wouldn't have been necessary. We may never know. But Nahum ends with the question about God's punishment of Nineveh, while Jonah ends with a question about God's pity for Nineveh. It's a strange way to end a dramatic book like Jonah. God has the first word in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and God has the last word in chapter 4, verse 11. That's how it ought to be. But we're not told how Jonah answered. We hope that he repented again, but we're not certain. And as we bring this series to a close, I want us to think about a better Jonah, about a better Jonah that was to come. Jonah's life and ministry was a foreshadowing of a better one to come, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God was willing to spare Nineveh, but in order to do that, he could not spare his own son. Somebody had to die for their sins or they would have died in their sins. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says, He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how, he'll, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about that question real quick. How is Jesus greater than Jonah? Certainly Jesus is greater than Jonah in his person. They were both Jews. They were both prophets. Jesus is the very son of God, the second part of the Godhead. He is, the great, he is greater in his message. Jonah preached a message of judgment, but Jesus preached a message of grace and salvation. Jonah almost died for his own sins. But what did Jesus do? He died for the sins of the world. Jonah's ministry was to one city, but Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jonah's obedience was not from the heart, but the Lord Jesus Christ did everything to please his father. Jonah did not love the people that he came to save, but Jesus had compassion upon sinners and proved his love for them by dying for them on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse, beginning with verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But here's the best part. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You think about Jonah on the outside of that city. You think about Jesus on the outside of the city at Calvary. On the outside of the city, Jesus asked God to forgive those who were killing him. But Jonah waited outside the city to see if God would kill those that he would not forgive. The real question isn't, how Jonah answered God's question. The real, que the real issue is how you and I are answering God's questions. Do we agree with God that people without Christ are lost? Like God, do we have compassion for those that are lost? How do we show this compassion? All of those questions and more are wrapped up in what God asked Jonah. We can't answer for Jonah. But we can answer for ourselves.
And we should be striving as individuals and as a church to give God the right answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this precious book that we've spent so much time studying. Oh, God, the truths that you have revealed to us in it. Father, we pray that we would hide them within our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, help us to, as you are the one who is truly merciful and compassionate, help us to be people who are merciful and compassionate. No, the Ninevites did not deserve it. But you know what? We don't deserve it as well. And we thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for that you are gracious and merciful to us. So now, Lord, in turn, help us to be gracious and merciful to others. Help us to be able to answer that question. Yes, we do have compassion for the lost. And yes, we do want to be obedient and tell people about how they can go from lost to being saved. Help us, Lord, to cultivate within us a hunger and a love for you, your word, and your will, and seek to do that in each and everything we do. All these things we ask and pray in the strong, worthy, and good name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.